We return to the Gospel of John and we are in the ninth chapter. In the last couple of weeks we've been examining the healing of the blind man, a man who was born blind from birth. And we looked at the subsequent results of that healing. There was a lot of confusion in the minds of his neighbors and those that saw him begging day after day in the temple. There was interrogation by the Pharisees who wanted to get to the bottom of this miracle, not only what took place, but who made it take place. It's important for us to remember that healing of the blind is the more rare miracles that are recorded in the Gospel accounts. Jesus healed a lot of people of a lot of different things, but healing of the blind is among the rarer of those miracles that Jesus has performed. And it was well understood, most especially within the Jewish community of believers, that the healing of the blind was something that God and God alone possessed the power to do. So after this healing took place and the neighbors wanted a religious comment, a religious stamp of approval, comment, something about this, the man gets taken to the Pharisees to give an account where he is interrogated. He is abandoned by his parents who leave him to fend for himself, although they affirm that it is their son and he was born blind. They speak nothing of what they likely had been told about how he was healed and who it was that actually performed this miracle. And so it becomes very clear as we progress through this narrative that the religious leaders understand that there's absolutely no way that they can deny that a miracle has taken place. And so instead of affirming the miracle, instead of rejoicing in this man's incredible turn of fortune, they instead turn to attack. They attack him and they attack the one who performed this miracle. This lifelong beggar who had hung out around the temple, depending upon the generosity of people to support himself, likely had heard many, many things over the years that he had been hanging around But this lifelong beggar successfully debates these highly educated religious leaders of the day and their line of thinking in verses 30 through 33 of chapter 9. And when that fails to convince them, they resort to the most heavy-handed tactic they had available to them, and that was to excommunicate him from the synagogue. Now, that doesn't mean a lot to you and I, but when you're excommunicated from the synagogue as a Jewish person, it means that you're cut off from the Jewish religious and social way of life. You are an outcast. You are now the least of the least. It would be akin to a Muslim who professes faith in Christ. The family will say, you are dead to me. Same thing in a Jewish family. Many Jewish families will say to their children who become Christians, you are now dead to me. And that's the kind of life that this man was now relegated to after having his life radically changed by being healed. He's now made to be an outcast within the community that he had been an outcast in for his entire life anyway. So I mentioned this briefly at the close of last week, but we really haven't spent any time developing this thought, but it's very important in this account as we look at the connectedness there is in Scripture between blindness and its metaphorical usage to represent man's spiritual blindness. So the healing of the man born blind, something that only God could do, is a metaphoric parallel to man's spiritual blindness that only God can heal. Throughout Scripture, 
This blindness is used to represent this truth. We'll look in Isaiah 43. Many, many years ago, Isaiah said, Bring out the people who are blind, even though they have eyes, and the deaf, even though they have ears. His counterpart, Jeremiah, would say, Now hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. If you know anything about the Jewish history, about the account of the Israelites all throughout the Old Testament, you know that they were slow to hear, they were slow to understand, and very quick to disobey the commandments of the Lord. But this was not an isolated problem within the people. It was also a problem that existed within the religious leadership of the day of Isaiah. He would say in Isaiah 56, verse 10, His watchmen, the religious leaders, are blind. All of them know nothing. All of them are mute dogs, unable to bark, dreamers lying down, who love to slumber. Now, if that was said about me as a religious leader, I have to get resolved in my life. But instead, the religious leadership would turn that against the people and accuse them of being the ones in the wrong, protecting themselves and their own stature. Well, centuries later, as a part of Jesus' public ministry and teaching, we would read these words in Matthew chapter 23, 16 and 17, where Jesus says, Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated to fulfill their commitment or their oath. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? Well, just like the teachers... Even the, even the people who had the Scriptures, who had them taught to them on a regular basis, lacked spiritual understanding to recognize that the one and only Son, the promised Messiah, was in their midst, speaking words of life and truth, as the Father sent and as the Father instructed Him to do so. It continued through the early days of the church. As Paul is describing the mission that Christ gave to him by sending him to the Gentiles. We read these words in Acts 26, chapter 8, verse 18. To open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. These are the words that Jesus gave to Paul as a part of his training and his preparation for his earthly ministry. Paul would go on to describe the unsaved in this way in Ephesians 4.18, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. There is a clear, there is a consistent example and pattern of how physical blindness is a parallel to man's spiritual blindness, and the need for that can only be rectified by God Himself. We read this in 1 Corinthians 2.14. Paul says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. These things were true in the days of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Jesus and Paul. They will always be true. They have always been true. You and I enter into this world spiritually darkened, and a position of great dependency and need, and God and God alone is the only one that can reverse the blindness that exists within the hearts of man. Well, let me ask you this. Why make such a big deal about this metaphorical blindness? I'll tell you why it's a big deal. Because just like the blind man who cannot heal himself, the unsaved, the spiritually blind, cannot have their eyes opened apart from the divine work 
and the divine initiative of the Father. As we read several weeks ago in John chapter 6, 65, Jesus was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. This challenge, this tension, this seeming paradox between the sovereignty of God and the matter of salvation and man's need to choose two sides of the same coin, incredibly difficult for us to reconcile in our own minds, and that's why we have to lay it at the authority of Scripture and say, yes, God is sovereign in matters of salvation. Yes, we must still choose to accept Christ, but we choose because God has called us and opened our eyes and enabled us to see the truth. Well, we're looking at the final verses of this narrative regarding the healing of the blind man. And we're going to look at the contrast between the one given spiritual sight and the ones that have not. Jesus has been absent from this narrative and now he re-enters and we're going to read these words in John 9, 35-41 and bring a conclusion to the healing of the blind man although this narrative will continue although the blind man will not be a part of it. Follow along with me in 35 to 41. Jesus heard that they had put him out. They would excommunicated him from the synagogue. And finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see and that those who may see become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. So we're going to look at this in two sections. We're looking at this as spiritual sight and spiritual blindness. And there will be four examples in each of these two sections. Four things that we'll notice about those who have been granted spiritual sight. The first thing is the divine initiative. Verse 35, And Jesus heard they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Very, very subtly it says, And Jesus found him. What does that indicate? When you read, and Jesus found him, what does that say to you? Well, the implication is, is that Jesus took the initiative to go and find this man after he learned that he had been excommunicated from the synagogue. This man, after being questioned by his neighbors and interrogated by the religious leaders, abandoned by his parents, excommunicated from the synagogue, here's Jesus coming up to him, He went to find the man who had just suffered this great loss in his life. Now this word, Jesus found him, is only used a few times in all of the gospel accounts. It's used at the end of the healing of the crippled man, after Jesus went and found him and said, I see you are well. Sin no more so that nothing nothing worse happens to you. Jesus sought that man out. The same word found is used to indicate that Jesus, as he was passing by, was seeking those that he was going to call as his disciples. It's the same word that is used here. Typically, people would come to Jesus with a need or with a problem, or he would be walking along the roadside and he would pass by someone, which is exactly what happened when he found the man born blind. It said that Jesus was passing by and he stooped down and healed him. Now he seeks to find the man and it indicates a divine initiative. 
Here's the parallel. If God did not take the initiative in our salvation, no one could be saved. Now, we don't like to hear that. We like to think that we have an integral part in our own salvation. We read verses in Scripture that verify that man must choose God. But what Scripture continues to say is that apart from the work of God, man is incapable of reaching out to God. Paul would summarize the spiritual condition of the unsaved in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Now, what does that say to you? That there's a remnant? That there's a few people? Does it say there's a lot of people that we're not going to talk about in this passage? This is a a, a reiteration of what is stated in the psalm. As God speaks to the psalmist and says, this is the condition of unsaved man. There is none righteous. There is not even one. No one does any good. Now, I can tell you that that ruffles the feathers of a lot of well-intentioned individuals when they hear things like that being said. What we need to be able to do is we need to be be able to, to strip away the impact of the culture that we live in that has elevated man to a higher place than he really ought to have, to a place even higher than God holds, and it won't be difficult to find a church that will do that. Regardless of how well-educated we are, how kind we are to others, how empathetic we are to the distress and the hardships of other people, no matter how moral of a life we live, no matter how good we are in our own estimation, we cannot... And we do not seek a relationship with God apart from His divine initiative in drawing us to Himself. We'll read later down the road in John 15, verse 16, as Jesus is speaking to His disciples, You did not choose Me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in My name, He may give to you. Now, I've talked to many, many people who read that verse and say, yeah, He's talking to just the disciples. That's not a universal statement about God's sovereign initiative within Scripture, within history. And to that I say, well, if you're going to narrowly define that to the apostles, where does that stop? Does it stop with God's love? Does it stop with God's mercy and His grace? Does it stop with God's empowerment of the Apostle Paul? Or are these teachings universally accepted by all believers? God's sovereignty and matters of salvation are paramount in Scripture. Nevertheless, man still must choose. You can't separate the two. They are two sides of the same coin. We don't just wake up one day and say, you know, I think it's a good day for me to get saved. I think I'm going to bow my knees and I'm going to pray the prayer and I'm just going to begin a relationship with God. It just doesn't happen that way. For anyone that could say that, it is then the result of God opening their eyes and softening their hardened heart and giving them faith to respond. This happens mysteriously. It happens Simultaneously, it happens gloriously, resulting in our salvation and our ability to know Him. Let me give you a 30-second personal testimony. I was born into a family that had zero religious influence. When I say zero, I mean not a lick. You could have quoted John 3.16 to me and I could have said, what does that mean? Where would you find that? Who said that? What's that about? 
I knew nothing. I'm a first-generation Christian. I look at my life, and I have to ask myself the question, how in the world did I ever come to the point where I understood my need for the Lord when I knew absolutely nothing about Him? I knew nothing. And as I've studied the Scripture, I've learned that God has opened my eyes. He has softened my heart. He has given me the faith to respond to be able to know Him. When I came to faith in Christ, I was 21 years old, and in tears in the parking lot of the San Diego State Campus University, I said, I need Jesus in my life. That was all I knew. So Jesus seeks the man out. And upon finding the man after his excommunication, we see this incredibly brief exchange in the latter part of verse 35. Jesus says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now the way this is phrased in the Greek is incredibly important. The question isn't being asked in terms of, Do you believe intellectually? In the Son of Man. He's not asking, do you believe that the Son of Man exists? He's asking him, do you believe that you're ready to put your faith in the Son of Man? Are you ready to commit yourself to the Son of Man? This is a faith request. It's not an intellect request. The phrase Son of Man, Jesus' favorite self-designation in all the Gospels, refers to Jesus as the one who is the revelation of God to man. Who is the revelation of God to man? It is Jesus and it is Jesus alone. It is not the pastor. It is not your favorite author. It is the Son of Man who is the God-man. He is the Word made flesh. He's the mediator between God and man. He is the Redeemer. He is the Lord and the Savior of man. And this is what is encompassed in Jesus saying, Are you ready to put your faith in the Son of Man? Now, while this man was a lifelong beggar and probably had no formal training like Paul, who was trained in the greatest rabbinical school of his day and who could understand the significance of the Old Testament teaching as it related to the life and the ministry and the cross of Christ as God spoke to him and revealed to him these mysterious truths, this man had at best a rudimentary understanding of what the Son of Man involved. He knew very well what it is he needed in his life. As he can now see physically, he needs to be able to see spiritually. He needs spiritual life. You know, we don't have to have extensive information to know that we are unsaved and in need of spiritual life. That Many will use that as an excuse to deflect making, making a commitment to Christ. Well, you know, I need to read a little bit more about this Jesus thing, about the Bible, and find out what's what and who's who and what it is I'm supposed to do. And I've I got to put all the pieces together. I'll tell you, you'll never get there if that's your approach. When I stood in that parking lot and said, I need Jesus in my life, here's what I knew. I was lost and without hope, and I believed with all my heart that Jesus could fill that need. That's all I knew. That's all we need to know. We need to know that we are lost apart from Christ, and He is on a divine mission with a divine initiative to call some to Himself to give to them Spiritual life. So we see, number one, the divine initiative. Number two, we see the opened eyes. Verse 36. The man, he answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? So you can see how ready he is to respond to what little revelation he possesses. 
We don't know what he knows by what he's gleaned in hearing what's been taught in the temple. What he does know is he needs spiritual life and he believes that this individual standing before him is going to help him be able to discover that. His heart has been divinely prepared and his spiritual eyes are ready to see the object of the faith that he is ready to place his life in. The object of his faith is in this Son of Man that he does not know, but he needs to know to meet the need that he has in his life. Now the word Lord here is the same word used in many instances throughout the New Testament. It's based on the word kurios. It's the word kyrie. And it can be translated into several other words, including sir and master and owner. And many would say that the usage here of Lord is probably a little bit out of context. And that's why some translations use the word sir. Now remember, this guy's been blind from birth. And when he gave an account of his healing, he said this man they called Jesus, meaning he had no knowledge of who Jesus was. He couldn't physically identify him. He probably couldn't audibly identify who he was. But he stands before this man now and says, Sir, who is he that I may believe in him? In verse 33, during his interrogation, he acknowledged that the man who healed him was a prophet. Remember that? Who do you say that he is? I believe he's a prophet. So it doesn't make a lot of sense that he would address Jesus as Lord, as we would understand Lord, but probably as Sir which is just a polite way of greeting somebody. Perhaps he thinks that Jesus is the messenger of the Son of Man. He might recognize the voice. And although not ascribing to him the role of the Son of Man, a prophet who could be the messenger of the Son of Man, who might be able to get an audience with the Son of Man so he can meet him and place his faith in him. A lot of speculation. We don't really know. It doesn't make a ton of difference. But here we have this man whose heart has been divinely prepared, is ready to meet the Son of Man who he believes is worthy of the object of his faith and can give to him spiritual life. You see here that even though his heart has been divinely prepared, salvation still requires a faith response. All throughout Jesus' ministry, he frequently called upon his hearers to repent and what? And believe. It isn't enough to be ready. You have to make the commitment. You can believe in all your heart that the person you're dating is the individual that you want to marry. You're going to get married someday. You're committed emotionally. You're all in. But until you say, I do, you're not. Right? So until we say, I do, to the invitation to come and be a child of God, we are not. So we have this preparation and we have this need for a response. In the, in the accounts that we've read so far in the Gospel of John, he says that he is the bread of life, that he is the, the light of the world, that to believe in him would bring eternal life. Not intellectually, not factually, but with a faith response. This is the consistent message throughout all of the New Testament. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's the testimony of the early church. Paul and Barnabas, while they were out on their first missionary journey, recite these words in Acts chapter 13. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as believed, has been appointed to eternal life, believe. You see the harmony between God's divine initiative and man's need for a faith response. It's consistent throughout the scripture, and this is what we see in this man's life. The divine initiative of the Lord, the opening of this man's eyes. Thirdly, we see the spiritual recognition. Verse 37 to the first part of verse 38, Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. Jesus' ministry didn't take place in the back alleys and in the side streets of Jerusalem. He didn't go out of His way to avoid people. All throughout Jesus' ministry, He boldly, unashamedly proclaimed who He was. He claimed to be the one that would come from the Father, the one who has come from above, the one who is the Son of Man, the one who is the fulfillment of Scriptures. And yet not everybody is ready to respond to that. Isn't that right? As we've seen so far. In fact, the vast majority of people reject the claims that Jesus has made about himself. His miracles drew huge crowds and we've learned that they were mostly superficial followers. If you think about it, after Jesus' crucifixion and ascension and the 40 days of appearances, he gave the instruction to the disciples to go meet in the upper room and pray. How many people were there? 120. How many people do you think Jesus touched throughout his three and a half years of ministry? Countless tens of thousands who were recipients of his work or were eyewitnesses to his work. In fact, I believe it's in the Gospel of Luke where it says that Jesus nearly eradicated disease in the land of Israel through his ministry. Yet most people still didn't believe who he was, who he claimed to be. They rejected the claims he made about himself, his origin, and his divine mission. Here, Jesus reveals himself to the man, just as he has to countless others, and the man simply says, I believe. That's all it took. I want to meet the man. I'm ready to place my face in this Son of Man. And Jesus says, I am he, and he says, I believe. His heart has been prepared, his eyes have been opened, and he places his faith in Christ as his Lord and Savior. The word Lord here, although the same in the previous verses, in context makes more sense here as he recognizes who Jesus is and he has now placed his faith in him as his Lord. The last thing we see in this is the sight response or the right response. Verse 38, and he worshipped him. Now, I can tell you, I don't think he pulled out a songbook and started singing his favorite songs to worship the Lord, because that's not really what worship is. It's a part of it. It prepares our hearts to hear from him, to submit ourselves to him. But in his heart, in recognition that he was standing before the Son of Man, the one who had given him physical and spiritual sight, he worshipped him. The word here indicates that he likely prostrated himself before the Lord, either bowing or kneeling or perhaps even laying flat out on the ground in an act of submission and in an act of reverence before the Lord. Folks, this is the right response to the Lord. 
We worship Him. What we do in our hour and 15 minutes together on Sunday mornings is a very, very small part of our act of worship. We are to live a life of sacrifice to the Lord, as Romans 12, 1 and 2 reminds us to do. In view of God's mercies, I urge you, brethren, to sacrifice, to put yourself on the altar of God and let Him do in you and through you whatever it is He desires to do. That's true worship. This man laid himself before the Lord and worshipped Him in this way. Well, we've looked at spiritual sight. Let's very quickly look at the contrast here. And this is spiritual blindness. And as I mentioned, there are four things that we're going to look at here. The first thing that we're going to see is the judgment. Verse 39, And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who, may, those who see may become blind. So, if you remember what we've read so far already in the Gospel of John, his words here, For judgment I came into this world, appear at first glance, very, very carefully hear me, they appear at first glance to be a contradiction to other statements that Jesus has made in regards to judgment. Let's take a look at a couple of these. In John 3.17, as Jesus was speaking with Nicodemus, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but the world might be saved through Him. So this appears to be a non-judgment stance by Jesus. John 5:22 and 27. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, and He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. So this is the posture of, yes, I do have the authority to judge. So we see what appears to us to be a, con- a contradiction. It's really a paradox. Far from being contradictory, these two truths are complementary. They are two sides of the same reality. While Jesus came to save... His mission wasn't to come and pronounce judgment. His mission was to save. But those who reject this gospel invitation condemn themselves and until they believe they are already condemned. That's what Jesus said when He was talking to Nicodemus. So to reject His grace is to receive His justice. To reject His mercy is to receive His wrath. To reject His love is to receive His anger. To reject His forgiveness is to receive his judgment. This is the continuation of what Jesus was going to say to Nicodemus in John 3.18. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Spiritual sight comes only to those who acknowledge that they do not see. Those that confess their spiritual blindness and their need for the light of the world, those are the ones that Jesus has come to save. On the other hand, those who think they see on their own, apart from the work of Christ, deceive themselves and will remain blind and they will not see. This is what we see in a continuation here in number two. We see the ignorance expressed in verse 40. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? And you can hear the disdain. In their voices, they would say this, this condescension. It isn't stated where this conversation takes place. But wherever they are, there are some Pharisees around who can overhear. He's been excommunicated from the synagogue. He could be in the surrounding areas. But wherever Jesus is, there tends to be some Pharisees. And so they've overheard this conversation. And so the Pharisees understand the intent of what Jesus has just said 
And quite naturally, they take great exception to what they've just heard, as Jesus has summarized in verse 39, the blind man's healing. They knew he was speaking in spiritual terms, and they rightly assumed that Jesus was speaking about them. So since this takes place just a couple of months before Jesus would go to the cross, based on the chronology that we can follow in the Gospel of John, the Pharisees would have already heard Jesus pronounce a very scathing assessment of them and their leadership. As already mentioned earlier in the message in Matthew 15, where Jesus called them blind several times, he would go on in the Gospel, uh, in that chapter of Matthew, to repeat that four more times. But in their own minds, they and their followers were the only ones who possessed spiritual truth and spiritual sight. Anyone who followed anyone or anything else, especially Jesus, were the ones who were actually blind. They were so self-righteous, they had no need for repentance, and since they placed their confidence in their ancestry as descendants of Abraham and followers of the law of Moses and called themselves disciples of Moses... They were the entitled religious elite and they had zero interest in giving serious consideration to their spiritual state. They were blind. They did not see. And because they said we see, Jesus said, they will remain blind. You know, you and I need to be very, very careful. We've been Christians for years and years. We've read the Bible through many, many times. We've read lots and lots of books. We know all of the jargon. We can talk Christianese with the best of them. But we need to be very, very careful that we don't allow a self-righteous ignorance seep into our life to the point where we don't have a need for confession, a need for repentance, pretend like we're a finished project. And if you want to know the Lord, just follow me because I'm the guy. We need to be very, very careful and guard against allowing that to take place in our life. So we see the ignorance that exists within the spiritual elite, those who really don't see. And as a result of that, we see, number three, the rejection Verse 41a, Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. Now that's a very strange way to answer their inquiry about what Jesus' intent was in saying, the blind will see, etc., etc. So it doesn't sound like something that Jesus, in a way that Jesus would answer the question, but you know, Jesus often didn't answer questions in the way they were asked, did he? He had a way of taking what was asked and turning it just enough to get to the depth of the heart of the matter and to corner them in their unbelief, their rejection, the falsehood that existed. So here's the point that Jesus makes in saying, if you were blind, you would have no sin. If the Pharisees, and every, anyone else for that matter, would confess that they were spiritually blind, thereby admitting their need for Christ, the true light of the world, they would have no sin because their sin would be forgiven. That's what Jesus means by that. You see, when you and I recognize that we are spiritually blind, we are desperately lost without an intervention with the great Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, at the moment we place our faith in Him, we are forgiven and we have no sin. That doesn't mean there's sinless perfection. It doesn't mean that we will be eradicated from all the challenges in living a holy and moral life before the Lord. What it means is that Jesus is not going to hold our sin against us when we stand accountable before Him on that last day. We've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. We've been cleansed by His sacrifice on the cross. And we stand before Him clean and holy and righteous because we have been given the very righteousness of Christ. This is 
the message of the gospel, forgiveness for sin, paid by the Son of Man to cure our disease of sin, enabling us to see with spiritual eyes the depth of our need and the gracious provision made at the cross. When you have that kind of spiritual posture in your life, we will possess a humble, submissive, teachable spiritual state in our life where God can do great and wonderful things in us and transforming us and through us and bearing fruit in this world. Well, fourthly, we see the tragedy in this exchange. Verse 41b, the second part there, but since you say we see, your sin remains. Unwilling to acknowledge their blindness and stubbornly holding on to what they thought was light, they are doomed to judgment for their unforgiven sin, most particularly the sin of unbelief, which results in eternal separation from God. The sin of unbelief is the sin that is unforgivable and dooms us to an eternity separated from God. The phrase, your sin remains, carries with it a tone of permanence. As we must be aware that self-righteous ignorance doesn't infiltrate our walk with God, we must also be careful that we don't allow rejection of God's revealed truth in His Word bring about God's discipline in our life because of our unbelief or our lack of submission to its authority. Thinking about the divine initiative of salvation, thinking about man's need to believe, thinking about what God has done for us ought to be such an overwhelming reality that we just are in awe that God would save us. As soon as I thought about this, what a unique privilege this blind man who'd been healed had in inquiring of the identity of the Son of Man and him standing there and saying, you have seen him and you are talking to him. You and I will never have that privilege. But here's what you and I enjoy together. We have been divinely sought out by the Father. He has sought you out to open your eyes, to soften your heart, to give you the capacity to believe so that you and I could become His child forever. Although we never met Jesus, we will one day. We will see Him face to face exactly as He is in all of His glory and all of His majesty. And you better believe that we see that we're going to fall on our faces and we're going to worship. We don't have to wait for that moment, though. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your willingness to seek out a people for yourself. We thank you that you have, and from eternity past, graciously allowed us to be a part of that group, unworthy and undeserving, only by your grace. We give you all the praise and all the glory for that truth. Father, thank you for this gift of salvation that has enabled us to believe, that has sealed us as your child forever and forever. We are the forever people of God and we long for the day when we will get to see you as you really are face to face. In the meantime, Father, we pray that as we yield ourselves before you, as we commit to live a life to you, as we struggle with our sin, as we resolve to a life of holiness, that we would sense your nearness, that we would sense your love and your grace and your mercy for us. That as you are holding us close, that we would feel that and sense that and see that in our lives. 
in such a way that we would just be overwhelmed with a desire to worship you. Accept this gift of praise for what it's intended to be, to declare to you our need and our love for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.